Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. If either of us were in a fire, whatever the fire brigade said, we would leave a burning building. It just seems the common sense thing to do. That is exactly what people object to, which is he's in effect saying, I wouldn't have died because I would have been cleverer than the people who took the fire brigade's advice. <sighs> but we want very clever people running the country, don't we, Evan? Do you, you accept you to short okay. the video? Do you accept you doctored it to make it look like he didn't give an answer when he did? Do you accept that? We clipped the video, we shortened the video. No, no, because that's not my question. I invite Sir Lindsay Hoyle to take the chair of the House. A Labour government will get Brexit sorted within six months. I think the country's got a big choice to make, and I think Jeremy Corbyn's completely unfit to lead it. The Labour Party's been my life, Nick. My life. I can't believe he's come to this. This is a very personal decision for me. I've got lots of other things I want to do in life. I've got to the stage where I'd be wanting to chew my own tie in frustration. Crikey, quite a week. Welcome. Welcome to the first Tortoise podcast. And since we're at the beginning, we should, I think, do the polite thing and make some introductions here. Basha, do you want to start? I'll start. So Kerry is a terrible old BBC lifer with a frankly daunting amount of radio experience, journalistic experience. Covered his first election in 1992. I hate to say it, Kerry, but I was three then. Uh, I was only four. I was just working. <laughs> he was the editor of the Today programme and also of Panorama. And Basha here. Basha Cummings cut her teeth on the foreign desk of The Guardian, uh, went to work at the UN for a bit, came back to London as news editor at HuffPost and uh, now works with me at Tortoise, where I think the deal is, Basha, that you represent the future optimism youth in this relationship <laughs> and I get all the other all the other bits. <laughs> so in case you haven't heard of Tortoise, we're a slow news publisher and we're on a mission to make sense of the world and not to add to the noise. And I suppose what that means is we're going to try and think about what's driving the news, not about breaking news. And that's what we're going to try to do through this general election campaign in the UK. There's going to be a new Tortoise podcast every week until Election Day. And throughout this time, we're going to be interviewing some of the people we think are really shaping the campaign. And we're going to get some help from our brilliant colleagues to understand what it all means. And we're going to introduce some of them later. There have been some quite big pointers this week to the sort of election campaign we're going to see, especially from, I think, Labour and the Conservatives. Yeah. Now, obviously, you can tell a lot from the policies they've launched, that goes without saying, but where they've launched them is worth remembering as well. In Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, it looks like this is going to be a campaign focused very hard on the Midlands and the north of England. 
I suppose the question is then, what do those regions really want? Well, I've made a list and it's, you know, it's obvious things. It's clear things. They want better schools, hospitals, transport. They want the brakes taken off public spending. And whichever of the two main parties ends up heading a government, that's what's going to happen. So we're going to borrow massively more and we're going to spend it on public services and infrastructure. Do you remember those old Treasury rules about public spending? I don't care, not off the top of my head. <laughs> well, even if you had remembered them, you could forget them now because we're basically ripping them up. We need to secure the economy for the long term. And the biggest risk to that comes from those who would abandon the plan. Yeah. I thought there was a little straw in the wind on my list about the standards of behaviour we can expect from the party's media operation in this campaign. So my eyes really opened wide when I saw that clip that the Conservative Party had taken of Labour's Brexit spokesman Keir Starmer on television and they'd edited it to make him look a bit gormless. Absolutely remarkable. And what I thought was remarkable about it was that when they got caught out doing it, they doubled down. They Completely. didn't apologise, they didn't retreat. So although I think you know you wouldn't say it's like a campaign-defining moment, I think what we might take from it is the idea that truthfulness is going to be less important in this campaign than cut-through. Yeah. But then there's also, this week we saw some important decisions about which parties are going to stand where. The Brexit party says it's going to put up 600 candidates in various seats. And that could hurt Labour in some places, but it's probably going to hurt the Conservatives a lot more. And what about that, the pact that there was between... Oh, yeah. So, that, so there's the pact between the Lib Dems, Plaid Cymru and the Greens, which they've cobbled together in 60 seats in England and Wales, where they're not going to stand candidates against each other to maximise the chance of a Remain candidate winning. So I think we, we're a long way from knowing what effect that pact's going to have. But effectively, we've got uh, the Brexit Party decision and the, the pact between the smaller parties, which are both designed to take votes away from the Conservatives. And that, I think, adding to the fact that after the election, we think there might be as many as 100 MPs who are neither Labour nor Conservative, starts to make it quite difficult to, for Boris Johnson to get the kind of overall majority he's looking for. He's really relying on Labour's vote tanking for that to happen. Could happen, but it's definitely a gamble. But it was a bad night for Labour. But it was a bad night, bad for, night Labour. for Labour. Bad night for Labour. But having said all of that, uh, the thing that I think we found both of us really captivating this week in the election was the role that identity and values really played in it. So everywhere you looked, it felt like it was yeah. rearing its head. And it, and particularly it was there in the, in the really awful things that Jacob Rees-Mogg said about people who had stayed put in the Grenfell Tower fire, which are difficult to, to listen to, actually. And it was also there in the old Labour diehard Ian Austin advising people to vote for Boris Johnson with such a crack in his voice that you could really tell how hard it was, what a betrayal it was of his sort of career and his values. The Labour Party's been my life, Nick. My life. OK, we're going to come back to both those moments, but let's actually start in Glasgow. It's one of the places we're going to stay really close to throughout this election campaign. And not just for the usual reasons that there'll be a lot of interest in Scotland. Will the SNP gobble up all or nearly all the seats the Conservatives won there last time round? You know, that kind of thing. Now, actually, there was something else about Glasgow which caught our eye this week, something which passed without much comment when it happened a few months ago at the end of August. There was an incident which was reported at the time as a riot sectarian riot, a street battle between Catholics and Protestants in a part of Glasgow called Govan. 
You might know that tensions between Protestants and Catholics have been part of life in Glasgow for a very long time. But to people who understand the city, two things stood out this time. The first is that it was provoked directly by something which happened in Northern Ireland, the murder of the journalist Lyra McKee by a terrorist group. The circumstances of Lyra's death were used as a sort of provocation to spread a false rumour which stoked up tension in Glasgow and caused that pitched battle in Govan. The second important thing is that the riot was witnessed by a youth worker in Glasgow called John Aitken and it made him worry that the young people he worked with there were becoming vulnerable to the rising political temperature in Northern Ireland. Basically, the shared identity between parts of Scotland and Ireland is so strong that the return of the bad old days in Northern Ireland could see the same thing happening in Scotland. That's what made him nervous, and it seems like a thing we should all worry about. So John did a really interesting thing. He took a group of young people from Glasgow to Belfast so they could see what sectarianism really looks like. But like I say, it, it all began when he saw that riot in Govan. On that night of the riot, myself and a colleague was out on street work and we we witnessed the riot. We actually went round the corner from our office. We seen all these balaclavas and Union Jacks and riot police. Who was fighting who? What what was the riot about? So what had happened was there's a there was an Irish unity march due to take place on that Friday. And the rumour had been that someone from a group from Ireland was going to come over and they had links to kind of terrorist activity and so they were supposed to be coming over for this march uh, and the the loyalists seen that as a kind of threat to the the community so they decided to protest and it just it was a standoff there was missiles being thrown there was songs being sung was uh, there's a pub that's uh, known to be a kind of Celtic pub that was attacked it just ended up really, really crazy. Like, it was just something we've never really ever seen in Govan or Glasgow. And one of the things I think we, we think we're seeing around the country is that people are, partly as a result of Brexit, but partly as a result of things that have been happening for much longer, people are feeling a much stronger sense of their own identity, that that sense of a shared politics is perhaps dissipating a bit. Do you think that's part of what you're seeing in Glasgow? Are people feeling that sense of sectarian identity more strongly than they used to? I think they, they, they feel more maybe Scottish. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think people vote for certain things depending on who they support as a football team. And that's wrong, but that is that is what, what we seem to do in, uh, in Scotland. So... I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So I don't think it's got any worse, but it's certainly not got any better. And the kids that you're working with, do you think they're sort of following the patterns of identity of their parents? So do you see the kind of sectarian divisions amongst the younger generation too, or is that not so important to them? But I don't think they actually judge each other. They definitely don't judge each other on, or oh, he's Catholic, so I can't hang about with him, or she's a Ranger supporter, so I'm not hanging about with her, or... They don't, they don't do that. Their group are, are very good. You took a group of, of young people to Belfast? Yeah, so following on from the, the riots, we got together with a man called Peter Johnson from New Scotland and he had put us on to some pots of funding that we could get that would then be able to take us over to a place called Corramila. That place in general, uh, Corramila, was just amazing for the young people. So we'd done some workshops looking on symbolism, so looking at 
how someone from the Protestant side will look to the Union Jack as being their flag. Have you seen Derry Girls? Because there's an episode in that which is where they do something similar, don't they? Uh, yeah, they, they actually come together. Yeah, yeah, that's a kind of... <laughs> uh-huh, they come together in a kind of camp or something. Yeah. But no, we were actually... Derry Girls was something that uh, we kept kind of going back to because although that's a very kind of funny programme, its message is pretty good because it's it's always got the kind of spin on how these girls were leading a kind of normal teenage life, but the things that were happening in their area was just pff, unbelievable. Can I ask you a funny, what might seem like a funny question, John, but that people are talking now about whether a united Ireland is more likely because of Brexit and because of the way that changes the politics of Northern Ireland and, and you know, Ireland generally. If there was a united Ireland, would that, or if Ireland became united, do you think that would have an effect in Glasgow? I'd like to say no, but... My head says probably yes, my heart says I'd like to think not, but no, I would definitely say if there was a united island, it would trickle over here, most definitely. But there was some interesting quotes from people in Northern Ireland when we met, just the other people we met in like Coronmela and stuff, and it's a bit like Northern Ireland's just been left to its own devices and has to fend for itself. John, thank you so much, it was great to talk to you. Thanks, John. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So we're joined by Chris Cook and Matt Dancona, two of our editors who also work at Tortoise. Hi, guys. Hello. Chris, can I rub you a question first of all, because you spent quite a bit of time in Northern Ireland recently. It's not somewhere that we traditionally care about very much in, in the UK general election. It's just 18 seats that slightly sort of weirdly do their own thing, so we don't tend to look at it much. It, it, should we do something different this time? We absolutely should. It's also, it's been an unusual few years in Northern Ireland, in part because 10 Northern Irish MPs, the DUP, have been supporting the government too. So there's, they're obviously... Brexit and the backstop circulated on Northern Ireland. So it's been a an unusual period post-1998, post-Good Friday Agreement, for us actually paying attention to Northern Ireland. But there is something big happening under the surface. There is a crisis brewing inside unionism, more broadly. That is to say, the political movement that believes in the United Kingdom as a union of four nations, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England. In Northern Ireland, it's principally at the moment being stirred up by the withdrawal agreement negotiated by Boris Johnson, which is despised by unionism. In some parts of the sort of political spectrum, that means there are people who traditionally voted for the hardline Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, who may switch to more moderate pro-Remain unionist politicians, like the that's principally the Ulster Unionist Party, the UUP. There may be people who go the other way, who say, I previously would have been relaxed about vote for someone like the UUP, but no, 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 the voice of unionism has to be heard. So it could cause enormous and very unpredictable tension inside unionism. But one of the big things that may come out of this election is something that is monumental and difficult for unionism to accept. When you're a unionist in Northern Ireland, one of the things you continually watch is the number of seats that are being taken by nationalist parties. And so they watch the Sinn Féin seat number tick up. And the Sinn Féin don't take their seats in Westminster. They don't believe in participating in the British political process. The problem with them for unionists is they watch the number of seats they win as a countdown to the day when the demography will mean that Northern Ireland is finally going to have what they call a border poll, the referendum on reunification of Ireland. One of the things that's terrifying to unionism is that there is the potential at this election for the central citadel of unionism, Belfast itself, at the core of which is this enormous city hall. It's a sort of symbol of Protestant ascendancy 
Belfast may fall. So there may be no unionists in Belfast in Parliament. So just jump in a second before you run us through the seat. So would you say that unionists are a bit broad brush, but are they angry or frightened or both? It is an anger born of fear. The betrayal of the DUP by Boris Johnson is a colossal... So um, that's the turning point. That's the shift. The that's deal. a huge thing. And you have to remember that unionism as a, in Northern Ireland as a, as a political creed is sort of defined by a se- sort of paranoia. They've been sold out a lot. Formation of Northern Ireland was kind of a selling out. Most memory in 1985, they feel they were sold out by Margaret Thatcher in the Anglo-Irish Agreement. There was a basically a deal negotiated over their heads with the Irish government about the future of Northern Ireland without their consent. This is another chapter of betrayal. They had until recent months been focusing on the Soldier F case, which is this bloody Sunday in the 70s, the shooting um, of unarmed Catholic protesters by British Army soldiers. One of those soldiers is now being prosecuted. And there used to be banners, there have been banners and still are banners, in fact, supporting Soldier F in lots of unionist towns. Those are starting to be replaced or supplemented with Stop the Betrayal Treaty, as well, Stop the Surrender Treaty. It's become a visceral, difficult thing for them for them to cope with. Mac, we heard from John Aitken in Glasgow just a little while ago about how what happens in Belfast spills over into Scotland in his experience. But if you look at this from an English perspective, what do you see happening in the way that English people think of the union that may not have been true 10 or 20 years ago? One way of looking at that is to look at the Conservative Party in the last few weeks. When I started writing about politics in the 90s, there was a lot of crossover between people who were in the Tory party and were passionate about the union and were passionate Eurosceptics. But if you'd given them a choice between holding on to the union or leaving the EU, they would almost to a person have said, maintain the union because they were, in their eyes, the conservative and unionist party. And I think what you now see, the completion of a process whereby the Conservative and Unionist Party, as once was, has become the English Nationalist Party. In that, Boris Johnson's Brexit deal, as Chris says, sells out the Unionists in Northern Ireland and holds open the prospect of further change in the Union with Scotland and elsewhere. Really, it's the Brexit Party. Yeah, it's not the official Nigel Farage Brexit Party, but that's that's what it wants. And that's what they want to talk about in this election is get Brexit done. And they are angry with newspapers including even the Daily Telegraph. It's sort of the in-house newspaper when it doesn't splash on the get Brexit done line at the cost of almost everything else. And so if you like, one of the defining ideas of conservatism over centuries is now being replaced by a new defining idea. What you're seeing alongside that is the total change of personnel in the Conservative Party. You know, I think of 70 MPs going not just um, veteran moderates like Ken Clark and Nick Soames, but you know people who are expected to carry on, like He Morgan, Nick Herbert, Justin Greening. These are people who had at least 10, 15 years more in them, you would think. But they've looked at the tea leaves and realised there is no place for them in the Boris Johnson Conservative Party. And has this been a slow burn? It's obviously politically expedient now to abandon the DUP. But when did that sort of carelessness towards the union really start, if if you're saying in the 90s it was something that, you know, was really dyed in the wool? Well, I think there was a complete misassumption that the Good Friday Agreement was a garden that didn't need tending and that the structures holding it up were not as fragile as they have turned out to be. And I think at the time, certainly in the Conservative Party, there wasn't enough attention paid to the fact that it was actually membership of the EU that really held 
the peace in Northern Ireland together. And now we're leaving the EU, at least in in principle. I suppose psychologically, there's been a slow drift towards having to make a decision, which is which matters to us more. And the answer has come back, at least from the Conservative tribe, getting out of Europe. I mean, I think the, the, the Boris Johnson deal is is the key moment. But it's been ever since the referendum vote in 2016, I think there's been a slow realisation that there would have to be a priority decision and it has been taken. But it's quite pragmatic, isn't it? Because we're going to talk later to Andrew Cooper, who does loads of focus groups around the country. And what, what he says is that when you ask people in focus groups about how much they care if Scotland and Northern Ireland were to go, frankly, they don't care all that much. That uh, make them a bit sad. But no more than that, if that's the choice, they cheerfully wave, wave it through. The whole idea of national identity is very important in this election. The sense of identity that there once was in the United Kingdom is now fading almost into nothingness. People did used to care that it was a, a union of nations. It was a union of four nations. It, it was part of the inheritance of the 20th century and for old people's the inheritance of the empire. But it no longer is. The things that drive people's electoral decisions are remote from the idea that we are a union of four nations. And indeed, English voters probably, if they think about it at all, regard the other constituent parts of, of the United Kingdom as a, as a drain. A centuries-old idea is withering before our very eyes in this vote. Politics is an emotional business, but there was no escaping, I think, the most emotional moment politically of the week, and that was when Ian Austin, former Labour MP, former advisor, former minister, who went on BBC Radio to tell people to vote for Boris Johnson. If you're my sort of age and you've been involved in political journalism of any kind, then the chances are that you've been shouted at by Ian Austin oh, yeah. quite a lot. No, I mean, I, you know, my first introduction to Ian Austin was through shouting. And being shouted at for not being sufficiently loyal to his master, Gordon Brown's budgetary principles, you know, that was what Ian did. He was initially a very, very, you know, kind of aggressive and loyal Unbelievable Brown. Really, grasp really, of swear really, words. As yes, well. yeah. I mean, very much so. Yeah. I mean, in that, very much of that era. And then went on to be a junior minister, um, Labour to the core. Uh, and then um, stood down from the Labour Party, uh, became an independent member during the parliament that's just ended over anti-Semitism, which was, you know, to be expected because his father was in the kinder transport. I guess uh, that was less surprising. But what was amazing was to hear him just before actually we were doing a thinking in the newsroom on uh, Labour's first hundred days on the Today programme being interviewed by Nick Robinson and Ian Austin says, not just, you know, there are doubts around Labour or he doesn't like Corbyn, but he advises Labour supporters to vote for Boris Johnson, not to vote Conservative, but he doesn't. He's so concerned that Jeremy Corbyn is not fit to be Prime Minister that he says, you've got to vote for Boris Johnson. Yeah. And the thing that struck me in his voice, you could hear that actually... You Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'd have thought, as you said, that leaving the Labour Party was the moment. But that's something you can undo. This was the moment. This was the moment. This, is, this was the thing you can't undo, wasn't it? It was an extraordinary thing because, you know, I'm absolutely, I'm, I, mean, I think I know Ian Austin well enough to know that he'll have no great fondness for Boris Johnson. Uh, but he was so absolutely committed to stopping Jeremy Corbyn getting into number 10, that he was willing to do something that, for which he will be reviled forever by his former comrades in the Labour Party. Yeah. So, so as Matt's mentioned, as luck would have it, uh, at the very moment uh, Ian Austin w- was advising people on BBC Radio to vote for Boris Johnson, people were travelling into Tortoise for a thinking. And among them was a man called James Robinson, who used to work as communications advisor to Tom Watson, who himself stepped down 12 hours before Ian Austin went. So I caught up with James and I asked him what he thought the central project is of Corbynism that it's made the party so inhospitable to both Tom Watson and Ian Austin. The answer is quite simple, actually, which is to reverse Thatcherism. And in order to reverse Thatcherism and undo all the changes that Thatcher made, you need two terms because you can't do it in one. And I think that's quite important because I think that will be uppermost in the minds of Corbyn and McDonnell because McDonnell knows, you know, reversing uh, Thatcher's radical revolution and undoing it and in doing it in a way that, that means it can't then be undone by subsequent Tory governments, if that makes sense, requires eight years and he needs to reassure the city and, and plan for two terms. And how do you do it in a way that can't be undone? Well, I guess you do it by nationalising industries that can technically be they can technically be privatized or reprivatized but if you believe that nationalization will be a huge success and incredibly popular and you can run those companies in a way that uh, more efficiently uh, than they're currently being run in the private sector then which government would want to reverse that for you know and it's same with the union rights if you are going to reenfranchise working people by making it easier for them to join a union or rather make it more worthwhile because unions are recognised in the workplace and they're recognised on an industry by industry basis or sector by sector basis and the result of that is higher wages who you know, is then going to reverse because yeah, these unions. things are so self-evidently brilliant that why because, would anybody want to turn back the well box? of course and if yeah. you're if you are on the left of the Labour Party and, and, and you believe and those things are core tenants in your belief part of your belief system Articles of faith, um, then of course you think they're going to work. They're going to be successful. They're going to be popular. I mean, that's that's the thing about socialism. No one wants it until they get it, and then they love it and they realise how brilliant it is. Yeah. Like the NHS, there was a lot of resistance to saying of the NHS. Now it's the the most loved British institution. Or yeah. Them. And and do you think the fact that that's the central project to reverse Thatcherism tells us something about what their political formative years were? Yeah, I guess so, because, you know, you'll see this language around a lot now, you know, talking about neoliberalism. Everyone accepts, I think, most people accept that 1979, with Thatcherism and Reaganism, 
marked a, a big departure and a big break in the sort of consensus that built up post-war in Western societies and in political systems, which was basically a form of you know, socialism or uh, collectivism, you know, which manifested itself in different ways in different countries. But the, the break from that came in with the election of Thatcher and Reagan and a move towards, you know, bigger role for markets, less state intervention. Of course, that was a major shift. So so this this now, they would regard it as a watershed moment, a yeah. moment to, to, to change that, very similar to 79, actually. You turn if you want to. The ladies, not for turning. <laughs> if you're going to have a terrible week, week one of an election campaign feels like the right time to have it. But let's make no mistake, it has been a properly dismal few days for the Conservatives, hasn't it, Gary? Yeah, I mean, fortunately for them, they probably haven't messed the bed yet on anything that really matters, like... Brexit or Boris Johnson's credentials as leader compared to Jeremy Corbyn's. But we do, I think, remember from 2017 that a campaign can make a difference. So there's a clamour going up from Conservative activists out there to get this thing sorted. But in this week of cock-ups, let's call them that, Jacob Rees-Mogg has got to take the first prize. He went on LBC and talked about the people who had died in Grenfell Tower and it's worth hearing again what he said. The more one's read over the weekend about the report and about the chances of people surviving, if you just ignore what you're told and leave, you are so much safer. And I, I, I think if either of us were in a fire, whatever the fire brigade said, we would leave the burning building. It just seems the common sense thing to do. What do you think, Kerry? It's quite hard to listen to, isn't it? It was, and I think it, for me it was the way that he sort of embraced Nick Ferrari as another sort of man of standing in the world that we yeah. wouldn't have made the mistake that other people made in the fire. And then, because I think you can make things worse with an apology if it is blatantly untrue, Jacob Rees-Mogg made things worse. Because what he said was, you probably remember, Bash, he said, what I meant to say is that I would have also listened to the fire brigade's advice to stay and wait at the time. I mean, come on. <laughs> Basically, clearly not if what you meant. think that is what Jacob Rees-Mogg meant to say and he just got it a bit wrong, then do drop us a line because uh, you're the only one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, OK, it might not amount to a hill of beans by the 12th of December, but the reason it matters in the long run is because it obviously takes us into some of the bigger questions about where the Conservative Party is heading and the tensions that they're going to encounter along the way. So in a nutshell, if you're aiming to be a more populist party, can you do that convincingly if you think, as Mog clearly does, that ordinary people are just a bit thick? Why don't we talk to someone who might know, because we don't. Um, Andrew <laughs> Cooper runs the pollsters populist and he was director of strategy for David Cameron. I think identity probably is even more important in the 2019 election than in the last, and certainly the, the dividing lines that the Conservative Party are trying to establish, the voters that they're trying to reach to beyond their traditional basis, that's very much fundamentally on an identity-based appeal. And given all that, how much of a problem is it when someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg says something of the kind that he said about people who uh, who stayed put in the Grenfell Tower fire. It's one of those comments which sort of got traction, stuck in people's minds, is because it's, it, it sort of felt like it was revealing what he really thinks about people. And it's quite hard to successfully to be an elitist populist party. The electoral appeal is based on trying to persuade quite poor 
traditional working class, traditional Labour voters in traditional Labour communities to trust the political instincts of the Conservatives to look out for people like them. And when Jacob Rees-Mogg says something like that, which, which, which indicates a, a pretty sneering view of such people, you've got to ask whether that poses some questions about the, the, the authenticity and the, and the sort of integrity of what the Conservatives are trying to do. And when you put that paradox to people in, I don't, you know, you do endless focus groups. When you when you put that paradox of look who's clapping to the people you talk to, what, what do they say? What's become paramount to them is simply that we voted to leave, and it, they can sense the fact that that decision may be being pulled away from them, and that feels to many people like an absolute outrage to democracy, and also a profound disrespect to people like them who voted for it. So, I mean, it's slightly terrifying, isn't it? Because this, this identity <laughs> thing is uh, as seen through the prism of Brexit. It's, it's like kryptonite, isn't it? It's, it's totally debilitating the system that we, we've grown up with and we're used to. And it's very hard as we sit here today to think, how could you, how do you undo this? How do you... How what do you, does a post-Brexit politics even well, look you know, like? Even if we world? resolve Brexit, do people that you talk to think that that somehow resolves the, the respect question, the identity question, all the stuff that accompanies it? I think that in, certainly in, when we do focus groups of people who voted to leave, there's much less confidence than there was a year or so ago that it's going to go well and that it's going to produce the, the benefits that they hoped. But that still isn't completely clear to people. Uh, a lot of people have sort of re- defaulted back to, to the really sort of fundamental control argument that was, of course, in the slogan in 2016, that if nothing else, at least we'll have control of our own country again and, and we'll be able to you know, govern ourselves and we'll be a self-governing country and it'll be great. I mean, I always, I always felt in that slogan from 2016, take back control, the word back was actually as important as the word control. And, and, and there's it's very clearly in the way people talk about it now, there is this sense of nostalgically remembered, probably completely misremembered sense of of a stronger country, more in control of its own destiny. Which we saw in the US as well. And I mean, what is the international parallel here? Because we're not, we're not alone in experiencing this shift towards a kind of more populist politics. No, I mean, we, we, we see exactly the same pattern um, playing out in, in most in most developed democracies. So it's very clear in, in the US where this sort of underlying shift in the demographic basis of the two parties, we can clearly see that with hindsight that started in the late 1990s and that the underlying sort of attitudinal drivers as well as the demographic coalition of Trump is the same as it is for Brexit. But that's the same demographics and worldview. It's the same combination of identity politics and economic situation. It characterises the support for the AFD in Germany and, and the Front National in France, and it's evident in Italy and in Spain. You know, this is happening everywhere. The extent to which it's, it's, it's completely disrupting political systems depends to some extent on the distribution of populations and on, and on electoral systems, and it's clearer in countries that have binaries thing which made it really, really brought it to the surface in this country is very unusually in, in the referendum. We presented ourselves with a binary where we stripped away all the other variables in elections like party leaders and local factors and other issues and we gave people a binary vote on essentially on how they felt about globalisation in the modern world. One of our colleagues has been joking that we're going to be reporting and talking about Brexit until the end of our lives is that that's his best joke ever isn't it (laughs) I mean it's a faintly terrifying prospect but it kind of feels like that's what you're suggesting that 
these are entrenching positions that are not just happening in the UK but internationally too. Yeah, I, I, I fear um, I fear that that is right. I think we will be talking about this. This will be defining our politics for for many years to come. Um, in that sense, there isn't there's no such thing politically as as post Brexit. And I think history will say, looking back on this in 100 years' time, 200 years' time, that this was the actually probably quite logical and, and inevitable political restructuring which followed all of the economic disruption of globalisation. And to some extent, the people we're talking about here are people who've been the net losers in our countries from the economic shocks of globalisation and the failure of, of establishments within those countries to respond to the economic and social and cultural consequences of those people who've suffered from globalisation. i just take you back to one word you used, because I was really interested in that. You said people are demanding respect, they want to be respected. Is there a way that comes out of the groups that you've done where people you think could feel respected? I, I think it is a really important part of the equation. And at the moment, for most of them, I think the first most fundamental test is we have to leave the EU. And it's very striking that a lot of people, leave supporters in focus groups, say if we don't leave the EU, they will never vote again because you couldn't have a more straightforward proof that there isn't any point in voting at all. It's also very interesting, in, at the beginning of focus groups, we always go around and get people to introduce themselves. We ask them to say how you voted. And when you, when you get to the final person, they realise that everybody in the room voted to, to leave there's this sort of sigh of relief and it becomes almost kind of therapy session. It's very, very clear that a lot of people who voted to leave feel that they're looked down upon and that they're judged and that they, they often talk about the fact they think that people think they were stupid. So this, this, this sense that they, they want to be respected for the reasons why they voted for what they did and I think the fact that they have a, a broader sense that the system doesn't respect them, that people in power don't respect them, it was a fundamental part of sort of how we ended up here. Are we done, Basha? We're done. All right. Andrew, thanks so much. Thank you. So, Matt, Chris, one of the things that really struck me, what Andrew Cooper was talking about, was about the sort of short-termism of the Conservative Party's current approach, which is that they're sort of trying to be, or at least Boris Johnson is trying to be, all things to all people in the key swing constituencies that he wants to contest. And there's a sort of question about ideological sustainability and what kind of party we end up with in 10 years. So I think one of the one of the striking problems for the Conservative Party is what something that's talked about a lot on the left of the Tory party. I, sh- I say the left of the Tory party. They're all Liberal Democrats now. But the um, a, a senior former advisor to Theresa May actually said to me, the thing that no one has really thought through in the party is the fact that if you drop Guildford, you drop your liberal, uh, economically conservative voters, you swap them for people in Mansfield, their political priorities are simply very different. And the idea that, you know, that a party that was once, you know, trying to become the lowest corporation tax major economy in the world can sustain itself in places in the north of England where traditionally politics has taken the form of a bidding war on public services is just not going to work. The expectations of a party whose vote base and MP base is in the Midlands, in the north of England, rather than the south of England, just requires a different philosophy. So you can splash the cash this time? but maybe not enough to keep those people happy in Mansfield forever. 
Uh, yeah, and there will be tensions between you know the, the the activist base, which is still you know southern, and the voter base potentially. This is a party whose heart and soul. We can compare it to the Liberal Democrats, right? One of the slightly odd things that's happened post coalition to the Liberal Democrats is they've got complete ideological consistency. So I know I can tell you now for a fact in twenty years' time there will be the revoke or rejoin party. They'll want to be in the European Union. They're skeptical about the size of the state. They have a sort of clear, coherent core to what they are. The Conservative Party, I can't answer that question. I don't know what they stand for on this stuff. If they are successful this time round and they they pick up a load of these seats, I don't know who wins in the in the medium term, whether their southern traditional Tory voters um, are more important to them than these marginal voters who who they're trying to add to build their majority. If they lose Guildford, they have to hold a lot of seats in a lot of places where traditionally they've never had to fight before. I just don't buy that these seats in the Red Wall, the Labour Red Wall as it's called, are going to fall to the Conservative Party. I mean, yes, they're willing to tear up their fiscal rules and spend money, they say. But how plausible will that be to working class voters? So if a Conservative Party that has Boris Johnson, Jacob rees at its apex, comes along and says, we love working class voters and we've got lots of money for you, and then you hear that, I wonder whether you regard it as a plausible thing to get you to the polling station to put your ex in the Conservative box. But if not them, then the Brexit party? Well, that's that's a great... I mean, that the Brexit party have an opportunity to present themselves both as the authentic voice of Leave, but also, crucially, as the gateway drug to Conservatism, which is you can't... You know, I understand you can't make the move to the, the old enemy, but you can go, you don't have to vote Labour this time, you can vote Brexit party. There's a big thing about the spending pledges at the moment is that the Tories also, they're, they're sort of half and half at the moment, right? So they're, they want to be half pregnant. So they want to increase spending on infrastructure. So their pledges at the moment are about capital spending. So there'll be more bridges, more school halls, more sports halls, da 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 da, da. There won't be more money, significantly more money, for teachers or nurses or doctors or welfare or public services. So they, they want to have the things you can put plaques on, but not actually to spend lots more money on public services. If you're living in you know Workington or whatever, it is the current spending that you will notice. It is the ability of your school to stay open for five days a week. It is the ability of your hospital to meet its targets. That's the stuff you'll see. Because remember, the thing, the fundamental thing about capital spending is it takes a long time to bleed through. And you know what? If it's not on a road you travel on, you won't see it at all. But I think the fascinating thing about the spending pledges this week is that you can present them as the end of something, the end of austerity. But actually, I think it's, but actually, I think they're better pitched as the beginning of something. This is the, the beginning of a complete reshaping of British politics, yeah, it, driven by identity, which is now fed through into the way parties it, thinking about money. It's in this election. This is the first authentically populist election in the sense that it will be governed by politicians promising simple solutions to complex problems. And that's a change because to take the Conservative offer, the old Conservative offer, as famously said by the great guru Maurice Saatchi, was cruel but competent. We know you hate us, but we will run the state we'll look efficiently. After the we'll, we'll, look after the, we'll look after the money. Now, that has gone. This is a party that is going to make lots of promises and is going to make lots of promises about infrastructure, bridges. You can bet with Boris that it's more likely <laughs> to be, there's more likely to be promised to bring back Concord than to increase the number of teachers, you know, or, or have a uh, some sort of huge airport. That's the kind of grand projet thing he loves. He does have that in common with Trump and Bannon in America, which is this love of 
borrowing huge sums of money to indulge massive populist schemes, lots of which don't happen. You know, there will be the equivalent in this election of the Trump wall. I don't know what it's going to be, but there will, there will be something in the Conservative offer like that. So, Basha, what what do you think, at the end of all this, what do you think we've learned? I think it's really striking to hear Matt talk about what kind of Conservative Party is standing before us now. And I think we've obviously been talking a lot about identity politics, and I think that identity politics is something that for for younger people is is really important. It's the lens through which they see the world. And I think what we're seeing is that it's finding a really wonky articulation in politics, one that doesn't feel particularly relevant. So rather than political parties feeling like they're coming closer to people, I think they're they're starting to sort of spin off into these things so you don't know what they stand for. I think that's really true of the Conservatives right now and I think it's a really confusing terrain if you're, you know, under 30. Who on earth are you going to vote for? And I think I hear that a lot among my friends too. So I think it's it's a pretty fractured landscape. What have you learned? I, mean, I think, because my job here is to be kind of old. Um, the veteran. The veteran. I, I think... W- I was I was thinking about the 2010 election, which to me doesn't seem all that long ago, but it's but it's really amazing how much seems to have changed since 2010. I sort of think of 2010 as the high point of something. It was when all the main parties, Labour, Lib Dem, and the Conservatives, came together as socially and economically liberal parties. The Conservatives had become more socially liberal. The Lib Dems had become more economically liberal, and what that meant was that you could you could have cooperation and collaboration between the parties and possibly coalition. In fact, there were there were two coalitions that could have come out of that election. It also meant, I think, that the debate about politics was incredibly narrow, and that didn't strike me as a problem at the time, but I think it does now look It feels back, now in a decade that we've moved to the fact that it's just so broad. Yeah. So I think it seems amazing how things have changed, because when values and identity are the dividing line in politics... You can't have those coalitions. You can't have collaboration even. You can't get into bed with another political party if you think their values are all wrong. So if you put that together with a parliamentary system that isn't delivering majorities anymore and you lob Brexit in as well as a massive problem we've got to deal with, I think the best way to put it is that the system feels completely screwed and it's desperately hard to see how we unscrew it. And that perhaps is the real problem with identity politics. That's a pretty depressing place to end a podcast. Another part of my job here. (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past 
for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.